Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Peter Politis, and he is the CEO of Greybook Realty Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Peter. As always, let's start with kind of where, how'd you get into commercial real estate? How did you get into development? It was a very highly orchestrated grand plan for a long time. No, like all good things, I totally fell into it. Yeah. Right? Like there was no grand. I wish I could tell you it was just. You, know, you were six and you saw like, this development. Yeah. You started, you know, counting the dollars you could make from this one. Yeah, I one figured structure. it looked easy, so anyone could do it. Yeah. No, I, you know, growing up, I wanted to be one of two things. I wanted to either be a baseball player or a real estate developer. I wasn't good enough to be a baseball player, and I didn't exactly become. No, a real really, estate you wanted developer. to be a developer when you were that young. Yeah, I did. But family like, is it family? Is your family in it? My family is actually in uh, the sales side of real estate. Okay, I'm actually the only person in my family who's not a licensed realtor. Okay, uh, so you you were exposed to it at a young age. Yeah, I was supposed to realize. I mean, listen, I'm a Greek immigrant, like every Greek immigrant. You either own a restaurant or a parking lot. <laughs> it was my only option. I couldn't cook, so <laughs> that was really the option. But I came out of school and I got involved with uh, the investment banking side on an IPO of a publicly treated a company called TLC Vision that delays our eye surgery. And uh, they were doing a spinoff IPO. And the CEO, who is my business partner now, named Elias Van Vakis, said, hey, listen, I've got a private equity firm. Why don't you come and work with me? And this was in the early 2000s. Private equity wasn't nearly as established as it was today. Super interesting guy. Thought it was an interesting opportunity and literally jumped in. Didn't know if there was any real estate involved and there wasn't really at the time. And he made a couple of different investments in a technology company. We had an investment in a real estate development. And I said, you know, this real estate thing is really interesting. We should do something like this. Not exactly how you did it so far, but in this, in this vein. And he said, sure, sounds great. Go for it. And that was literally, you know, and I give him a lot of credit, not just for giving a young guy the opportunity to go out and build a business, because that takes a special person. But when it became a meaningful business to, to still let the people who built it run with it predominantly is really cool. So it's been uh, 15 years this year. It's a 15-year anniversary. Is that developer that you guys uh, invested some money with still around? They're still around. We're not partners with them anymore. Okay. Our organizations have, I guess, grown a little bit over the time. And now we're up to you know 70-something active developments in across the GTA in South Florida and approaching $15 billion of development value. So Wow, in 15 years. Yeah, just uh, it's actually been an interesting run. It's one of those things where it's the overnight success story that took 15 years to yeah. build. And so you are the founder. Would you call yourself the founder of Greybrook? Yeah, we're the founder of Greybrook Realty for sure. Greybrook was actually Elias's essentially holding company. Uh, oh, really? And then now uh, there's three partners, myself, Elias, and my other partner, Sasha Chuchus. Was there a single year or an event that really kind of leapfrogged you forward in terms of uh, to where you are now? Or was it just knocking away at it every single year until you, until you arrived. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I explained it internally that we talk about it was every year was like a, we made a meaningful leap in a different way, shape, or form for where our organization was at the time. So you look back on it and it's, it's almost not any one event, but it's the continuous growth. And, and we had a vision of growing a big business, right? Like we weren't looking to do a transaction or have a partner. We saw ourselves as building a global private equity firm and it had to start somewhere. When we were first in the business, we were just, the first deals we did were condo deals where we come in, we're equity partners with, with developers, we co-manage through things. And we said, you know, what if the condo market slows down? We should probably get in the housing market. And then we got in the low-rise sector and we said, well, you don't always have to build. You can do condos, homes, and then just develop the land and sell the land. And then that translates into doing stuff in South Florida, it translates into doing stuff in the value add space. And you create a diversified portfolio for yourselves and for your investors. 
At what point did the uh, top 40 or under 40 fit in that timeline? Uh, That's a recent wait, what accolade. Is that? What is that? I yeah, understand. No, this would be a great time for Peter to his own horn. It's, no, uh, I, I just it, saw that recently. Yeah, well, you know, I was talking to the BNN guys before we did a little clip on BNN. They interviewed me and I said, you know, it's A, it's obviously an awesome honor to be one of Canada's top 40 under 40, but literally it's an unjust award considering like the 60-something people that helped me, us get here. It was like a massive team effort and it was nice recognition, I thought, for everybody because, you know, it's it's a once-a-year thing. There's only 40 candidates. Obviously, there's a ton of really, really so talented how, how people. How much did you pay for uh, the Yeah, I wish. <laughs> I, if I could have just bought it earlier, I would have. But uh, Top 20 under 20. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Actually, funny story. My Elias, who's our partner, he was top 40 under 40 in like the mid-90s. So, yeah. So, it was just like full circle. It was actually So, he paid for you to get on. He, yeah, exactly. I'm like, we, you couldn't have done this earlier? I had to work so hard for so many years. So, so let's keep going through the timeline. So, this was 15 years ago. You kind of started off. What was the manifestation? Like, what did the company look like? What was the goals at that time? Yeah, I mean, there was two people there. And yeah. one person that was there is no longer there. And then Sasha joined my partner about a year later. Is that person kicking themselves still? I don't know where they are, but uh, probably a little bit, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's everything's for a reason kind of thing. And so at that time, you really didn't have any expertise in sort of specific real estate space. You were really more just the equity partners coming in. I mean, we didn't really have a lot of expertise in any space. I mean, I was a young kid when we started this business. I was 21 years old. I knew I wanted to work hard. I knew I wanted to build something for, you know, Elias and ourselves. But we really learned a lot of the expertise as we as we went. And we got to a really unique space where we get to see the real estate business from not just 15 or 20 of the biggest developers in the GTA and in South Florida, but also from a wide group of lenders. Like every real estate developer thinks they build the cheapest, get the best financing options. But when we see what so many guys are doing, we can bring that sense of market knowledge and real-time market knowledge to all of our assessments. Like we sit in a really unique position to make qualified investment decisions. So I guess at one point you had all this equity, you're, you're putting it into these investments where did you decide to start becoming a real estate company? Really? Yeah, I mean, it started off with an, a relatively, in today's standards, nominal amount of proprietary equity that we were investing in the deals. And like everything else, we said, we should do more of this, except we need more money. So we said, well, let's just talk to our friends and family and get some money from our friends and family. And then we made them some money and they introduced us to some people and had a lot of lunches and dinners and sat on a lot of couches and kitchen tables. And fast forward 15 years later, Everybody's have, rich. Yeah, richer <laughs> for sure. Teasing. Uh, but we have 7,000 active investors in over 30 countries. We have institutional investors, endowments. I used to know every one of our investors like back in the day. It was really, a, it started off as a small, small business, right? And yeah. uh, it's it's really been the manifestation of a lot of people's hard work and dedication. But that's not specifically for investing in the real estate or the realty arm. Is that only yeah, for the it was. Arm? It was like, you know, outside of a couple of opportunities that were kind of opportunistic in the healthcare space because Elias is, you know, he runs our healthcare group today. We have a healthcare group that's mostly the proprietary capital of the three partners. We don't really take on third-party investors, but we've we've IPO'd four companies either on the NASDAQ or the TSX. And so from time to time, you'll bring an opportunity like that. But it was almost exclusively focused on the real estate side. So and how tough back then was it to track interest? Right now, obviously, there's a ton of interest on the equity side. I mean, obviously not just in Greybrook, but in, you know, a whole lot of real estate vehicles. Back then, though, it was not the same market it is today. How hard was it to attract the first 200 investors? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you this, that I think that we laid the groundwork for equity investing in real estate development. Everyone said it couldn't be done and that they, people wouldn't do it. The liquid aspect, the uncertainty aspect, it was not, basically everywhere we looked, they said we were crazy and nobody would do it, 
right? So it wasn't just the 200 investors. It was to get them to continuously do it because these developments have long investment cycles. So there's only so much progress you can show somebody in a six-month period over a four, five, six, seven-year development, depending on size and scale. I would guess with that size and scale you've kind of developed now, you're not actively out there looking for more more capital because you've got these equity partners that are you know now been with you for 10, 15 years. They're rolling the money back into your your process. Yeah, I mean, we're always looking for more investors for the sole purpose that we really have a a vision of being a massive global real estate private equity firm, right? So when we started doing stuff in the GTA, it manifested into us in South Florida, and we have four or five million square feet of either luxury condo or ground-up purpose-built rental down there. And we've expanded into the value-add space today in Ontario and Quebec and in the U.S. And I wouldn't be surprised if we did. We will do more in the U.S. And I don't know if it's one year, three years, five years, but expanding in the value-add side in Europe. Like We really see growing this into a real global brand. So if I was looking to invest in Graybrook Realty, how would I, what are the qualifications? What's the, what would be the process for that? Yeah, I mean, we have a registrant who's uh, licensed and regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're a registrant in all the provinces. So there's certain minimum criteria, either being an accredited investor or an eligible investor. And the criteria is really not all that onerous in terms of like financial assets or investability, but our minimum investments are actually 25000 bucks in a given deal and investors get to choose the developer, the location, and deal that they're involved in. But it's really our organization's job to, you know, some guys invest 25 or 50 grand, some guys invest 5 million bucks in a deal, but we create diverse private equity real estate portfolios for them. So it could be high-rise, could be low-rise, could be luxury condo, purpose-built rental, value-add. Like our job is to create a diversified portfolio for somebody with relatively nominal means to start if they had. What's the, what's the uh, return range over the kind of different risk profiles you run? Yeah, I mean, we try to double our investors' money every four to five years on the development side. And on the value-add side, we're kind of looking at the 14 to 18% on a, on a simple annualized basis. So, like, that's the general return profile. And some of our stuff, most of our stuff is not cash flow yielding, but a lot of our U.S. value-add stuff will have a current cash flow component. What's the what's the legal structure? Is it sort of general partners, limited partnerships, or how do you how yeah, do you organize it that way? It's predominantly a limited partnership. We have a substructure called the mutual fund trust, which allows the lion's share of our investments to be RSP, TFSA, RESP eligible. We we take IRA and four hundred one k in the U.S. and stuff like that. So we have a highly highly complex but very simple way of doing business in the sense that it's limited liability to any of the investors. We don't have any cash calls. On our investors, no dilution mechanisms, none of them put up any guarantees, which is big because if someone's doing a five hundred million dollar real estate development and say I can be cash called, it's like I could be cash called for an unlimited amount of money. I don't want to do that. So and, who covers the overruns then? If there are yeah, equity calls, that's what our that's what our development partners do at the end of the day. So if the project needs more money. Our developers obligated to put it up by way of non dilutive loan. They put up all the financial guarantees required by the bank. And at the end of the day, we split the profits 50-50 with our investors and our development partners. And how do you, so maybe go in that direction, what's the, the development partner relationship? I mean, you must probably have your staple of five or 10 guys. You just kind of rotate through the same guys over and over again. Yeah, I mean, we have like 15 or 18 active development partners, some of the biggest names in the business, some of the multi-billion dollar families here in the GTA and in South Florida for that matter. And for us, it's we're constantly looking for opportunities together. It's not them sourcing or us sourcing independently. Whenever they're looking at something, we're typically looking at them with them in real time. And by the time we get to a diligence waiver date, we're all on the same page and off we go to the races. So it's a heavily collaborative effort on the diligence. And then from there throughout the development course, it's super collaborative in terms of zoning, application, sales, marketing, consultants, and all that stuff. And are you guys actively involved in some of that decision-making? Super actively okay. involved. We have a pretty robust asset management side, which are really there to manage the project hand-in-hand and represent 
Graybrooks and our investors' interests throughout the project. It's not passive capital where we write a check and say, let us let us know how it goes. Even the things that are non-major decisions become so collaborative, like the architect and the location of the sales center, just because you're always in, in conversation with our development partners. Now, some development partners probably wouldn't like that. I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, you go through... Now, I know you're not looking for new development partners, but let's say someone approached you or you approached somebody. If they knew that you were more or less safe fares, that can be an attractive position for some some equity participants? Yeah, I mean... Versus someone like yourself who's way more engaged. Not that to say the one's right or wrong, but... Yeah, I mean, so two things. We have a responsibility to the capital. So we just... In our business model, it just doesn't work. Separate aside... Even the biggest developers in the city over the last 15 years that we work with realize the value that we can add throughout the process. We believe and they believe that we can make more money together putting our heads together to do that. If somebody who manages or organization who manages 70-something developments and $15 billion can't be accretive to the decision-making table, then your mindset's probably not one that would make a good partner for us anyways. It's a good screening process. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if anyone says they know, like, I know everything or close to everything. I mean, that's, that's just not a business model that makes a lot of sense for anybody, I don't think. And, and of, your, uh, of your deals that have closed out, I won't ask you about any current ones, but any, any ones that have closed out, do you have a particular favorite amongst the group or anything that was either particularly high return or interesting or uh, yeah, makes I mean, you smile when you think about it? I think it's like your children. You like love them all and hate them all equally for different reasons. <laughs> I think the, sh- the short answer is some of our stuff that we've done have had some interesting results, not just from a return standpoint, but we're not in the building business. We're in the making money business and we make it in different ways. We had a development that we bought in Liberty Village in December of 2007. We bought 1.89 million buildable square feet, you know, literally at December, like what could go wrong? You know, the world (laughs) falls apart eight seconds later and then we're sitting there being like, oh my goodness, we're just going to sit here and wait. It's actually an interesting story. Like one of our investors calls me and he's like, you know, my stock portfolio is down. That's what he sounds like to me. My stock portfolio is down 50%. What's going on with our project? I'm like, well, the land's still there, right? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, great. You were happy to own that property six months ago. Like things will come back. And it's actually interesting because if you look at it from a, actual practical standpoint, none of the things happened on the dates and times by which we suggested they would. The end time frame actually was basically exactly what we thought it would be. And for every dollar that went in, for every hundred grand that went in, it came out as 350,000 bucks. And that was a quarter million dollar profit on a hundred grand invested over what's one of the worst financial times in our history. Separately, we had a similar size project on the Queens Key. We bought it. We you know we we're going to develop 1.5 million square feet. Off we go. We got it approved. We bought it for $60 million. We ended up getting an offer two years later approved for $167 million. We thought to ourselves, that's probably okay. And then go ahead and pull the sell button. So even though our, our like business a, plan... That was like a 4% return, 5% <laughs> return. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's like, like a T-bill plus 1% kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> so, and, and that's the truth. Like that's where the business of evaluating options. So we've built stuff. We've sold stuff early. We intended to build. We buy approved stuff. We buy raw land. It's really about making money throughout the development process. And frankly, even on the value add in apartment space, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that to us is really development too. I mean, we're not buying a passive asset and just collecting a cash flow, whether we're renovating units or lobbies. Like it's just the building happens to be there, but we're renovating and, and adding value. Like our job is to add value. And if there's passive appreciation in the market, it can add to a tailwind. But we're really in the manufacturing business at the end of the day and making a manufacturing margin. Well, maybe it's a good time to jump into the apartment sector. You had a big purchase last quarter. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, we've we've purchased a few things. Interestingly enough, I see all the uh, headlines coming out now about how hot the Montreal and the uh, Quebec City market is. But we bought uh, 660 units in Quebec City and Montreal, about 450 of them in Montreal and uh, 200 and change in, uh, in Quebec City. And separately, we, uh, we bought 550 units in Ottawa and Gatineau. 
on the value add side. We have those are all those are all existing sort of older stock portfolio apartment buildings. That's exactly right. A lot of some of them did not have nearly the TLC. They were owners that were just using them as a cash flow producing asset. So it was not how much more can I put into the building to add value to increase my rents. It's more how much can I pull out of my buildings so that I can live my life in the fashion that I want to. And that was that was a portfolio purchase um, or a bunch of a bunch of yeah the Ottawa Gatineau was a portfolio purchase. Quebec City was a separate buy. Montreal was a separate buy. And we also bought 560 garden-style townhouses in Houston, Texas, down there. So that was also a separate purchaser. And was that a clear strategy? We're going to go seek multiple large transactions to execute on at the same time? Or do they happen to just come up around the same time? Yeah, I mean, like my dream is to say that I can control the transaction flow and to, to time them out exactly perfectly. Like that would be fantastic. But realistically, I think that we're always looking for opportunities. And I found that most of the time they converge in time in the business. So it was not a strategy in the sense it was we were looking and it, they all kind of came to fruition at a similar time. But we're always out there looking. So how chaotic was that when you realized that all of a sudden you got to pull out all this capital? Are you kind of turning around, trying to run around, scraping as many dollars together as you possibly can because you got to get it all out? No, I mean, not to toot our own horn, but we're like, we've kind of built a bit of a machine on that side of the world. And when we have a strategy, we're out there talking to a lot of people and seeing where it's going to fit into their portfolio. So when the transaction actually comes, people are like, geared up and ready and understand, okay, this is where it fits into my portfolio. I've talked about it with you guys. I already understand. I mean, most of our transactions will close from going firm between 45 and 60 days. So whether we're buying, a, like our Houston transaction was like a $100 million Canadian buy. Our Montreal and Quebec City was a $110 million buy. So like we're geared towards moving high volumes of capital quickly. And we think that's a competitive advantage for us. And frankly, I'd rather buy a $100 million asset than a $15 million asset because there's a lot fewer people who can transact. Typically, I see better margins, whether it's development or value add on the higher asset values. So I got to ask, of course, being a lender, how did you finance both of those? I don't care about the Texas asset. Let's just talk about the Canadian ones for now. Yeah, I mean, CMHC. And in the US, it's the usual you know, Fannie and Freddie stuff. But yeah. for us, it's actually a space that we're going to become more active in on the yeah. value add side. So like, understanding financing opportunities and that stuff in terms of additional options. is always very So on the value add side, so I'm presuming you did a five-year term on, on the CMHC stuff. So you've given yourself five years basically to retrofit the suites, turn the rents, and Correct. then you're going to go and refinance in five years. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to make a decision whether we we buy, hold, and sell, or like, or sorry, buy, renovate, and sell, or renovate and keep. It's going to be depending on what the market is, right? Like we're not obligated to sell at the end of these periods. We will monetize them at some point. And sometimes debt is valuable, right? Having longer term debt with, you know, better rates can really be helpful. I, I don't have to tell you guys, but where the debt markets for that product was two or three years ago was a lot, uh, a lot mm-hmm. cheaper than it was today. Which loan structure did you like better? The U.S. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or the CMHC option here? It's really tough to compete with Fannie and, and Freddie. I mean, we got a 12-year fixed interest rate with five years interest only at a very, very competitive rate. I mean, there's there's not a lot of moving parts to it. They, they have a very aggressive financing structure down there. But I'll tell you, like the CMHC stuff makes the world go around here. So like, let's, it's, not, it's not that one's good and one's bad. It's just they're a little bit different, both highly valuable. Is yeah. that Fannie? I've heard rumors. I maybe, I maybe you don't know this, but I've heard Fannie and Freddie have gotten less and less conservative over the years, right? Because, of course, they had their own responsibilities back in 2007, 2008. And I've heard whispers that, you know, they're, they've seemed like they've forgotten. It's been 10 years and they're starting to do things that maybe they shouldn't. Is that, do you think that, that yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair? I don't think that outside of like an interest only period or fixing the interest rate for a very long time, I don't think that they lent any more aggressively than we do here. If okay. not, it was, you know, 75% loan to value. The debt service coverage was, you know, 
probably better than you would get out out here in Canada. So if they are, unfortunately, we didn't get one of yeah. those cuckoo banana <laughs> loans. But we we you know what our job is not to lever these things as much as possible. Whether it's we've taken less debt in some circumstances because we want to have the ability to have staying power. We don't want to have you know interest or cash bleeding every day. If we don't, that's that goes for development and for for value add on our development condo side. I bet you know, 60 or 70% of the assets that we own on the condo side, we own debt-free. Hmm. And why is wow, that? What's, what's the decision for that? The decision is, you know, staying power is very important. I don't know in some cases, and I can't control the market, the time of the ebb and flow of the market, but I know that I can get a site approved that we buy. I know someone's going to buy a condo in Liberty Village in the waterfront or in Yorkville or at College in Spadina or wherever we're doing. I have to have the ability to stay in ways. The guys who can't, don't have the staying power in real estate who ultimately get hurt. And we can't afford to do that. We can't afford to get hurt. Never got hurt. Do you before. feel like we're uh, late in the cycle right now? I think that there's no such thing as a straight cycle anymore. I think everything has so many permeations and and changes to it. Whether it's you know you're seeing the condo market be super strong right now, and you're seeing the housing market on the for sale house side be slow. Totally different factors. Totally different reasons for it. So seeing those things be decoupled to a certain degree is unusual. Usually they're they're much more intertwined than what you're seeing today. So I think the short answer is. There's a ton of opportunity ahead. I think the opportunity will ebb and flow. And you have to, A, be creative in the sense of seeing what those opportunities are and B, really have the ability to, to wait through a market if you had to, right? I, I don't think that there's an individual cycle in any one of our assets that's as defined as it used to be. There's just too many factors from global geopolitical financing. And, you know, there's more institutional capital global coming into Toronto. Blackstone came into the value add space last year with, you know, I forgot how many billions of dollars you guys probably would Lots. Lot, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Billions of US dollars, yeah. which is like, you know, quadrillions of Canadian dollars. Yeah, exactly. And that changes the market. And there are a lot of our international investors are looking at investing with us denominated against the US dollar. So if five years ago the dollar was at par or six or whatever it was, we're not that much different in price to them, right? There's global money coming into Canada. So there's a lot of factors that'll come into this play to sit there and say it's a clear cycle because of this, that, and the other. We're in a different ballgame now in terms of who invests and how they and why they invest seeing a lot of east asia money come in here because they want to have a presence they want to have i've seen organizations come in by development land by lumber suppliers by sales and marketing guys forming guys and they're like controlling the entire supply chain like it's next level type of thinking it's long-term generational type of thinking people think that you know the crazy foreign buyer comes in and pays a dollar for something worth 75 cents they're not crazy. They they denominate in different currencies. They see a much longer play and have a lot more different options out there. Hmm. Jumping gears a little bit, we were predominantly Toronto, I guess, when you started. Yeah. And maybe to talk about the evolution of moving to different markets and why. And then now, of course, now you're in South Florida and you mentioned Texas as well. So what was the the push to move around to to Quebec and, and others? Yeah, I mean, it didn't it didn't hurt that when we started it, we started in an amazing city that had a lot of growth trajectory, right? Like you, we were in Tulsa, you know, he probably wouldn't have had the same growth trajectory that we had here. But our view was we understood development in probably one of the most complicated places in the world to do development. Toronto, from a, a zoning standpoint, a construction standpoint, the space that the city affords you to build from a construction standpoint has become significantly more complicated over the years. And we believe it's a transferable skill set. And the reason we started in South Florida was South Florida is one of the only places in the world other than Toronto that pre-sell their units, take deposits, and use it in the capital stack. In places like New York or, or, or San Francisco or Boston, they don't do that. So it's, you know, it's a first, 
It's a giant mess piece. You build the building and a whole people show up. You know, what could go wrong? So yeah. equity investing. In, oh, and you got to fix your profits before you even put a shovel in the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons we went down there originally. And we focused on the luxury market down there. And they call everything luxury in some markets. So true luxury, like, you know, waterfront or city front on the bay or something like that, that are selling to, you know, not just locals, but mostly international people, whether it's Northeastern, South American, Russian, this and that and the other. And then when we got down there, we found out a lot about this, about Miami, including zoning rights, including it's much easier to get something approved down there. There's more of a, you know, as of right zoning, which like doesn't exist here in Canada. And the rental market was very exciting down there because it was kind of like a three and a half or 4% vacancy in the market, but rental rates were similar to what we're getting here in Toronto now. I mean, you know, US dollar converted, but there's no development charges. There's no section 37. There's no cash in lieu and there's no HST. It's just more margin. Now, the truth of the matter is that a construction loan down there will cost two or 3% a year more than it costs down here. So that'll eat into a little bit of the margin, but they're higher margin projects down there. Mm -hmm. So having a partner and our partner in Miami is called Property Markets Group, PMG, who's based out of New York, Chicago, and Miami. And they do ultra luck stuff. They're building something on Billionaires Row in Manhattan. You know, it's six and a half, seven thousand $7,000 a foot. Average size unit is 4,000 square feet, 28 million bucks. I'm going to sign you guys each up for one each. <laughs> or you can, you know what? You can get like a, like a one of those duplexes if you want. We'll have to share one I think of best, you know. That's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's Not crazy. only did he pay to get 40 under 40, he paid to come on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. also. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Going that's standard. why you're getting so $28 million if you want to come on the podcast. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that level of perspective and understanding whether it's the luxury buyer that we're going after or we have a giant platform that we're working on with PMG down there that's called kind of X Living, which is a social way to live. It's a rental building, but you know, 20 or 30 or 40% of our buildings actually rent by bedroom. And it's nothing like student housing. It's like get your own bedroom, you get your own bathroom, you have a common area, could be a two, three or four bedroom unit. We'll clean your common areas, but everything you want to do in life at this building. We have events, whether it's like literally puppy yoga or rumba yoga or you know, hot yoga. We have whiskey tastings. We have bands that come in and play. We have movie nights. Like literally if we were all in our early twenties today, we would never want to live anywhere but here. And it's the lowest total dollar ticket price to rent in the different places of Miami and Fort Lauderdale that we're doing it. And on a per square foot basis, it's some of the highest. So economically for a developer, high per square foot price, well, low total dollars is a really attractive feature. And PMG is doing it. Like we have a few sites in Miami and in Las Olas and Fort Lauderdale, but they're also in Orlando, Denver, Oakland, Chicago. Do you think you can replicate that in Canada, GTA? You know how many, basically everybody asks you that. And if you go and see it, you'll be like even more excited because when you see it, it's just like, oh my God, this is amazing. The truth of the matter is, is twofold. One, you don't need to replicate it here because of our vacancy rates. But two, land prices and the ability to build within a very prescribed envelope is so tough that to deliver the amount of amenity space that we're doing would cost so much money and it wouldn't, you would need to get rents that made no economic sense opposite the market to make that work. It's actually a shame because the living experience is just out of this world. But just too much, too much waste of space effectively. Yeah. It's and, and land costs just too much money in, in most of these places to do it. And frankly, the only place you could do it, which might be out in the outskirts where the land is a lot cheaper, you know, the, you know, 19 to 39 demographic is less excited to live Mm -hmm. out in Georgetown, let's say, and that kind of living there. Downtown. The ones that enjoy goat yoga probably don't uh, yeah, want to commute in from there every day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. So uh, what kind of premium would that command though over market? When you do, when it works down there, 
you know, how much premium can you charge for something like that? I bet that we're getting 15 to 20% premium on a per square foot basis to the market. When you look at it dollars to dollars in terms of like just dollars per square foot. But what we're finding is that people also want to stay within the building because they get tied into the community. We opened, uh, uh, not we opened, like a restaurant tour that we knew opened up a restaurant, one of PMG's Miami assets, and it became like the hottest restaurant. So people are hanging out there. We have coffee house in the lobby that's technically open to everybody, but it becomes like a social gathering. So we saw people go from renting, you know, I have two roommates that I don't know in a three bedroom rented a building where I got a bedroom where I have my own two bedroom with a friend or I have my own one bedroom with like a spe- like a you know, my boyfriend or girlfriend that I met down there or whatever. So people live their lives around this building. Like we did a partnership with WeWork and our site in, La- in Las Olas. And like literally there's co-working space everywhere. There's game stuff. Like literally you'd never want to leave here if you didn't have to. And that's what we're finding is that people really just enjoy the social living aspect. It's like programmed living. Hmm. So it is a shame you can't replicate it here. It would be so like, it would just be such a big hit here. Like, I don't know if you could ever, you would be very unlikely to make the economics work. But I'll tell you that that building that we just finished leasing up, the fastest leasing building in Miami, and from a per square foot basis, it's hard to beat. How fast was fast, and uh, how was the vacancy rate down there? The vacancy rate down there is typically three or four percent. It's kind of like three and a half, three to three and a half percent. It's still tight. Still tight. Yeah. the The building was quite large. It was probably six hundred units or something like that, and the number of beds is over a thousand. And uh, you know, in like nine ten months, it filled up which is like very, particularly for that market. Like it, it'd be good for this market. It's particularly fast for that market. You had mentioned your, um, your kind of focus on luxury. Why don't you take us down the logic with that and how you kind of landed on that being, you know, something that you're going to focus on? Yeah, I mean, we are believers that, and we've been saying this for so long, and a lot of people hate hearing this, like the Manhattanization of Toronto. And uh, it's not like we are our own city and we offer our own things. But apartment living 25 years ago was like stigma living. Today, it's like necessary housing. And we think you're going to see a lot of the baby boomers who are going to want to come back to the city. And whether it's retirement or choice of life, people are not going to want to move out. And we don't feel that our luxury market is is very immature, not just in the sense of the kind of product that's been offered and the number of real luxury buildings that exist out there, because we think it's quite limited. But the offering that what we need to bring to these people has not been brought quite to the caliber that they have in other cities, whether it's New York, Miami, London, level of services, finishes. And we believe that it's a binary market that exists. It just hasn't been serviced to the point that it should yet. So these people are out there, they will spend five, 10, and $15 million on a condo, but it's got to be exactly what they want. Otherwise, they'll wait. They're not going to sell their house or something that's kind of eh. And the other challenge with luxury is people don't want to buy that house four, five, six, seven years out. So you have to find a medium to where you can deliver a two or two and a half year delivery time to meet these people's needs to sell their homes, talk to their designers do all those things, get their affairs in order to, to move in in this house. So we think that there's a large play on that. We have quite a few developments in and around the Yorkville area, one particularly on Yorkville Avenue at the corner of Yorkville and Avenue Road, where we're hoping to turn it into what ultimately will be the most luxurious building in the country. For everybody not from Toronto, Yorkville is Toronto's most prestigious area. That would be a fair statement, I think, to make. You know, all the big all the big retailers are down there, all the the Hermes and uh, all that are down there. And it's the, the, the average per square foot condo pricing down there would be in the currently in the $1,500 range. Does that yeah. Correct? I mean, th- that's a great example of like kind of old luxury. Like some of the new stuff that's there is two and a half thousand a foot or more. Some of the older buildings can range. I mean, that's the interesting thing about Toronto is that you have a building that's in a great area that was built 30, 40 years ago. And it's like, you know, you're charging 700 bucks a foot in the building next to you that 
2000 bucks a foot kind of thing. So it's commanding the highest per square foot sale price in the city for new product. And it's focusing on end user. It's our view to focus on end users there because that's where, that's where I want to live. That's where people who you know, want to be connected to the city and have amenities at their doorstep is where they're going to want to be. Yeah, also on the epicenter of the public transit, right? You've got two different subway lines going in different directions. Those people are not taking public transit, Aaron. No, well, <laughs> it doesn't. If, 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 we have a house right car in the yes, process. Right in the middle, yeah. the- <laughs> um, what, without giving the secrets away, like what kind of things are you talking about when you're talking about sort of ultra luxurious? Yeah, I mean, I think that ceiling heights is something that hasn't been mastered yet in the city. Our product there will probably be 11 to 13 foot clear, which means like no bulkheads built around. If you've been in a condo that has nine or 10 foot ceiling with drops and you see an 11 or 13 foot clear unit, it's like, feels like it's three times the size, even though it's the exact same size. Number one, both from, uh, you know, marble finishings, bathrooms, flow, amenities, like these are things that people want, whether it's privacy, whether it's security, whether it's technologically enabled stuff. Like we have a development in South Florida where you have like a full concierge service in the building, but I have an app at my fingertips for our I want to rent a Ferrari for the day. I want to get a private yacht. I mean, we're not going to have any yachts pulling up in Yorkville and Toronto, but to have the ability to do certain things, to book certain experiences, to have basically anything you want at your fingertips from a technologically advanced standpoint and a services standpoint is something that we want to bring to the city. And how big are these uh, units? Yeah, I mean, the, th- the interesting thing is that they don't actually have to be all that big in the terms of like, in some places where you're thinking four or 5,000 square foot units. But I think that we would probably average somewhere in the two and a half thousand square foot range. Of course, you know, there'll be some guys who want a full floor and it's going to be seven or 8,000 square feet and half floors and those kinds of things. But private elevator access, you know, two and a half thousand square foot. And the other thing is, is that you don't want to have five and 600 square foot units in there. The guy who's spending five million bucks doesn't want his neighbor to be, you know, three U of T kids renting and partying late at night. Like there's got to be a certain level of separation between that kind of investor geared product and then luxury. The problem has always been, I need the investors to get out of the ground and pre-sell but I want to build a luxury building. So everyone's kind of been stuck between a rock and a hard place doing this. So, you know, we're going to think of some creative ways to start construction earlier, really commit to the strategy, and then offer that true end user experience. Do you think it's uh, foreign investment or do you think it's predominantly GTA or what's the mix? I hear sometimes that it's like 80% of the buyers of the luxury luxury condos are, are foreign buyers. I think it's going to be a lot more local than people think. But if we procure some of the star architects that I think that we were talking to, and none of them have done any work here anywhere in Canada to date, so it's none of the, the people that we've seen here, they have an international following themselves. But I think it's going to be the lion's share of it in terms of like percentage-wise, maybe not you know, over 50%, I think will be local end users who want to live there. I mean, a lot of our investors are the exact types of people that want to live there. You know, we have guys who have car collections who say, I want to live there, but you got to make sure that my garage is a private garage because my insurer won't insure my $4 million, you know, Ferrari if it's sitting there out in the open. So like, these are all types of things that you take into account in terms of services. I have wine collections. Where am I, you know, how do I do different things? How can I have security? How can I have technology? You should see the closets that we're doing down in the U.S. Like, you know, some of them are the size of condos here, but you know, the, the types of finishings that they're offering you, you got to walk in and wow these people or else you're just going to walk out and not buy it. And that's, at, what, you mean by price buy, point, yeah. that's what you mean by binary. That's a, it's not selling the dream because selling the dream almost seems like it's superficial, but they got to walk in there and be like, this is where I want to be. Like, this is, they've thought of things that I haven't even thought of that are just make it so amazing. That's what you have to deliver here. And how deep is that uh, buyer pool, do you think, in a city like Toronto? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had the exact answer. Like everyone says it's not that deep. I'm not saying they're right or they're wrong. I think it's deep enough to absorb more than what is out there today. 
It's just not delivering the right product. I like I can think of 15 or 20 buyers that we know that are out there in the market for something like this that haven't been given what they want. And these are active discussions we're having with these guys saying that, yeah, you know, that building doesn't offer me this and that doesn't offer me that. And for whatever reason, and they don't want to make a move if it's not exactly what they want, not just because it's a lot of money, because they're hoping to make, you know, a rel- like not five more moves from this. You know, they're going to be there for a long time. They want to see themselves there. And how tough is it finding sites in uh, high profile locations? It's tough finding sites in low profile locations. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you know, that's, that's the interesting thing is, you know, the vendors here, every one of them have the last piece of land on earth. And it's always the best piece of land for some reason from the vendor's perspective. And it, it offers you something that no one else can get. And as somebody who sees, like, we probably see 250 legitimate transactions a year. And we'll buy, you know, in 17, we had 17 or 18 acquisitions. In 18, we had 8 or 10 acquisitions. We'll probably have 10 or more, you know, in the 19. Do you think that's the hardest part of the business for you right now? Just finding more projects? I think it's definitely... It's like it's all hard. It's all hard for different reasons. You just get over one hump and you move on to the next hump. We're lucky because we don't just get the deal flow from our organization, but we have 15 or 20 of the biggest developers in the city who go out and look and source opportunities off market, on market. And a lot of times, you know, if one of us don't see an opportunity, it's probably a B or C or D level opportunity. And like I call it the real estate waterfall. Like it always has, it finds a home. It'll find a home, you know, at the top of the waterfall, the middle or the bottom. And we try to plug ourselves in at the very top and get those kinds of opportunities. So we'll pass on things that other people will think are, are great deals. And they might be for their deal flow. And, you know, they might prove us to be wrong that we passed on them. But it's always hard to find opportunities. It was, it was hard 10 years ago. It felt, yeah. it felt impossible 10 years ago. It's still how, the same now. Out of the 15 or 18 you bought last year, how many were there that you really wanted that you weren't able to, to bring home? We're lucky in that sense that we, you know, we're a known commodity a lot to the, both the vendors and to the brokerage community. They're happy if they see us on the other side. Like, I was telling our guys stuff that we've put under contract and not closed on, like not gone firm. It's been like two or three things that you know we found something that nobody knew existed, including the vendor, and you know just there's reasons for it. But separate and aside from that, we do a lot of diligence up front. We don't have time to waste our own time, let alone somebody else's time. Like we want to be respectful of everyone's time. We value our time the most. So when we're on a site, we know a lot about it. It's an educated bid. Sometimes the problem is that most some people don't do a lot of work up front. And they'll bid something that, you know, is not as realistic. We had a low-rise site where we knew there was $25 million, Like, we did a lot of work with engineers. There was $25 million in servicing costs. It was a big site that the broker didn't know about. The vendor didn't believe. And then, sure enough, someone else tied it up. Then they went ahead and found it out. You know, tried to give them a haircut. They got mad. They walked away. Transaction fell apart. We had moved on to something else in the area. You know, that site's still not sold. Right? So, it's hard to compete sometimes with just the volume of people making offers. And my biggest, the best thing that I see is like, you know, somebody offered me an amount of money and did put it on paper and didn't close, never materialized, but it's worth that plus a dollar, no matter what that is, even though it didn't matter if it was from one, two, three Inc. And the guy had no money. You compete with agents trying to get listings. You compete with people who aren't real. And that's when, you know, you have to filter through the noise a little bit. Yeah, there's, um, you know, we always kind of joke in our credit committee here. If you have a broker deal that comes in, you feel like you you lost when you win because you're, what did I not see that some, no everyone else found? And I guess for you guys, it's kind of the same sense. Like, why did I pay the most? Or why was I the one that ended up winning this bid? But I guess you got to be smart. You got to trust your process. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I've never been unhappy in terms of like when we got something and had buyer's remorse. Like I don't, I don't need independent validation that we bought a, bought something that was good. We trust what we buy and we believe in it. And, and sometimes it's also in the execution, right? Like, you can get something done that the other the other market didn't do because you see it differently. It's happened to us. We've put a bid on something. Someone else has bought it. They've gone on to do something that we didn't see, right? 
sometimes it's a function of how much time you spend on it. Sometimes it's a function of creativity. Sometimes it's a function of you realize afterwards what you can do. But I, we've seen that. Everyone always thinks, well, you're just a dollar higher on revenue and that's why you paid more. People can see and process sites differently and they can add value to these sites in different ways. It's not, there isn't a, maybe 15 years ago, there was one way to do things. I think today, there's a lot of different ways you have to be really creative in order to make money. On the creativity side, you know, for projects you've got going forward, what would you see in terms of, you know, putting tech into buildings or anything that would kind of, you know, push the envelope beyond just offering people square boxes to live in? Yeah, so I think it's a super interesting conversation because I think technology can add so many things to buildings. The biggest challenge is that you plan these things five years in advance. By the time you get to the end, you're like, this is the most cutting edge technology. We have color TVs. And then all of a sudden, there's <laughs> flat screen TVs. And all of a sudden, there's TVs that project onto walls. And all of a sudden, you know, so the challenge is that you want to add technology, but the best technology is wired into the building, right? Like not, you don't just, you know, put a piece of electronic equipment in the corner and say, your, your unit's now a smart unit. It can do all these cool things, even though maybe the Google or Amazon will do that one day, different from, you know, Alexa or whatever, Google Home. But that's the challenge, right? Is you want to create these buildings that have all these technology. The time you get there, it's always obsolete. So that's a real that's a real thing that there isn't a solution for. I think that a lot of what needs to be done is through app technology and through incorporating the different technologies that come out. So whether it's you know Nest, whether it's Alexa, like some of our U.S. product on the luxury side, you can control everything and anything from your app and as different features come up and as different technologies come up, as long as it's all wired in there, you can start augmenting and adding services as you go. I think it has to be done through your smartphone at the end of the day. You know, we, we've we had stuff where your smartphone is your key. You, we had stuff, which is a which is not a very complicated process to literally, you know, you're going to go down to my unit in South Florida. I'm going to give you an electronic key. It's going to give you access to Ballet, the features, the concierge, the pantry, all that They're stuff. They're going to know your name. They're going to know, know your name, yeah, all that stuff. Coming, your yeah. key's valid on your phone for seven days, then disappears. And you get all that erases from your phone. doesn't exist anymore, right? It's all about convenience at the end of the day and staying connected. So that's something for us that we, we want to see how can we use app and app technology to create a baseline, but also have it a platform to augment the luxury that you offer later because it's always going to change. I guess the problem is, of course, everybody's smartphones get uh, more sophisticated, but yeah, if you're hardwired to a building, you're kind of set in stone for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, it's at the end of the day, that's that's the reality. And and you can do things to, you know, affect some change as you go along, but you're you're stuck with what you've what you've done to a certain extent. So it's it's not it's like the worst business if you want to stay on the cutting edge in terms of like the day you deliver that product is brand new. I mean, it's it's brand new, but typically not from a technological standpoint. But these are competitors are kind of bound by the same constraints too. So it's uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's the it's the forever problem, right? Yeah. It's, it's until we can build buildings in three weeks, like they do in other parts of the world, then it's gonna it's gonna be a real thing. So we're talking about some of the kind of creative ways that you you know try and uh, make money in these projects. Have you ever lost money on any of these projects? Yeah, that's a great direct question. No, I, we've we've you know I'm knocking on on wood here. Some version of wood. Plastic. Yeah, some strong wood-like plastic. No, we've never lost money in any one of our transactions. And that's something we're very prideful of. And it's not because we're the smartest guys in real estate or the luckiest guys in real estate. I mean, we go back to how we buy things and where we buy them and who we buy them with. Our partners have some of the largest balance sheets in the country, the ability to wait and hold and execute and borrow when others can't borrow or wait when others can't wait. So, you know, we could be buying a employment zone land with 95% debt at a double-digit rate with some guy who's never built a condo before. And at the end of the day, at the surface, most people say, well, it's a condo development, not knowing the 100 levels of additional risk you've taken than buying something that's either entitled or has a clear zoning path with little or no debt with somebody who's done this you know, 20, 30 times before. 
So I think that's part of why we've been so successful in terms of not losing money. And frankly, at the end of the day, it's people's money that we manage. Now we do have institutions and endowments, but you know, we, we know these people, we know that they're sitting there at the end of the day. It's, it's people say, well, you know, it's easier for me to lose my own money than it is to lose somebody else's money. And for us, we want to make sure that that never happens because at the end of the day, we have the answer to these people that know us. Yeah, you see the 7,000 investors drop down quite a bit if uh, you put some L's on the scoreboard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I th- and I think that most people don't understand the complexity that involved in development, right? It's, it's super complex and people think that anyone can make money doing it. You know, we have a high specialized skill set in doing this and we like to think that, you know, we're, we're amongst the best at delivering these kinds of returns. And when the market makes a dollar, we want to make more than a dollar. When the market makes... 20 cents. We want to make more than 20 cents. We want to outperform the market at all times. And I think that that's something that we feel we focus on doing a lot. And, and we really bring all the things we can together, every one of these projects to make sure we maximize profit. From the lending side, when we look at risk profiles, you know, experience is always a question we ask about, but construction, it is forefront of that uh, equation. Whereas somebody's buying a Tim Hortons that's halfway through a 20 year lease. I mean, experience is nice, but it's probably not going to make or break a deal. You know? Yeah. They, they, they can cash the check as good as the next guy can cash the <laughs> yeah. check every month. And then when you're looking at um, you know, geographies across Canada, you mentioned some of the markets you're in already. I mean, obviously, you recently entered some of the Quebec markets. You're very active in Toronto. What do you think about an outlook for the rest of Canada? There's a whole lot of, whole lot of uh, geography out there that's unexplored. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we get involved in, a, in projects, whether it's development or value-add, we're highly interactive. We're boots on the ground, and we do it with scale. And the truth of the matter is, is that we wish we could expand to... 10 markets across North America in 10 minutes and be done with it. But, you know, when you're buying thousands of units and you have people on the ground and and execution teams and project management guys, like it takes time to expand. So we do see opportunities to grow, especially on the value add side, I would say predominantly, we're probably going to stay geographically focused in the GTA in terms of development for Canada, but the value add space, we definitely see opportunity other parts of the country, which just, it's more about hours in a day and current focus. And it's Ontario and Quebec for the next little bit, but if, you know, it will be the rest of Canada sooner rather than later. Because you've digested this big, chunky apartment uh, portfolio and then… Uh, yeah, I mean, know. it's it's one of those things when you buy a big portfolio, then a lot more opportunities come. They're like, oh, you bought this, so I have this property within, you know, close distance. And that's where you start getting economies of scale and take advantage of those opportunities. It's, okay, great, I have 1,000 units or 1,200 units in Quebec. Now I have 500 more that I can bolt on at half the effort or a quarter of the effort that it would have been to buy those first 500. And that's where the economies of scale really start rolling out for us. So you're, I mean, listening to this, it sounds like you're, you're opportunistic, right? Is that maybe the best way? You said earlier on, I'm sorry if I butcher this, but you're not in the business, not in the development business, you're in the business of making money, right? So would that mean it really depends on what presents itself coming forward? You know, you talked about eight or 10 transactions potentially in 2019, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 20, really depends on what the marketplace brings to you. Could it be predominantly in Florida if that's what happens? Like, how does, how do you kind of ascertain where you're going next or what the, what the next year looks like and next three or five years, if that's applicable? Yeah. I mean, I, I say we're very opportunistic, but in a very focused fashion. So I don't see us picking up and saying all of a sudden we're in the Connor development space in San Francisco when it wasn't on our radar, you know, three months ago or four months ago. It's we have target areas of growth and that's, you know, value added in the U.S. and the top 30 or 40 markets in the U.S. So whether it's in Houston or whether it's in Dallas, whether it's in Sacramento or Miami, if those opportunities present themselves, we're nimble enough to move. Mm-hmm. On the development side, we have, you know, a whole matrix of what cities we think have the best ex-living platforms that we want to do with our partner, PMG. And today we have another opportunity that we're coming out shortly with in South Florida, but it just easily been in, in Oakland or could have easily been in Denver or Chicago or other places. So within our area of focus that we already know and have 
bandwidth and have expertise to roll out on. That we will do. But, you know, the random, I, I bought something in, you know, Spain because it was on Andalusia. We're going to build a hotel. I mean, that's really not, that's not our area of expertise. So that sounds very romantic and <laughs> we can all do it and have a passion project and do something like that. So I guess part of that is driven by your developer partners and what they're coming across as well, right? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that we probably start every, every year and we check in regularly is the development partners say, where are you guys looking for? Where do you guys see the opportunity? If you could tell us to look for your favorite thing or your least favorite thing, what do you not want to look for? We give them, we arm them with that because at the end of the day, we are managing people's capital. We do know what people do and do not want to do. We do know what fits into portfolios. I mean, we've recently bought a number of projects in one part of town in terms of the lower rise side and say, not that we wouldn't buy something here, but it's got to be really amazing to buy something here because we've got a good portfolio there. But we're, you know, we have less in Guelph for Kitchener and we want to, we want to bulk up in that market. So we want to have exposure to different markets. The guy who's buying a townhouse in Oshawa is not the same person who's buying a $5 million condo in Yorkville. It's not the person who's renting one bedroom and a bathroom in Miami, nor is it the person who's building or buying a $10 million luxury product on the beach, right? So we want to have share of wallet in different markets and also have exposure to different markets because as you're seeing it, real estate is cyclical, even though I said it doesn't have a defined cycle anymore, which I believe, but things ebb and flow. And that's a portfolio-based approach to investing is really a long-term strategy. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're not putting yourself in a very successful position over the long term. How often are you fielding calls from your investors saying, what, why did you just do that? Or, you know, why are you investing in Quebec? Like, how often are you just kind of, or guys saying, you know what, I want my money out. Like, do you, are you doing, or is there somebody on your team that's responsible for handling those calls? Like, I'm assuming that they're, they're not directly invested. They're kind of behind the scenes. And so maybe get antsy or nervous at times. Yeah, I mean, listen, we deal with people. So everyone has a personality, which makes it fun in the business. You know, we don't get a lot of those kind of calls, like, what are you doing? Because they get to pick the location and the developer and the projects that they're in. So at the beginning of each one of these, they can say, I do or I don't want to do it. Some of the interesting discussions we had, we had a, a Hollywood producer who was an investor of ours, and he was coming in one of our low-rise deals in Hamilton. And he's like, you know, I don't know about this and that. And we're doing it with two very large real estate development families. I'm like okay, well, you know, I don't like your angle of that shot. And, you know, you, you, the actress said this, and she should have said this, and you should have panned out and faded. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean? I watch movies. I can direct movies, right? I can produce them. I was like, that's stupid. I'm like, what do you know about real estate development? Like, wh <laughs> what do you know that two of the biggest real estate families and the biggest private equity firm that does this stuff, or one of anyways, does it, like, great. But he's like, yeah, that's a good point, right? So you deal with people and personalities, but at the end of the day, the results are what matters, right? Like, people only... They're going to get in because they trust you and they should trust us because we've earned that trust. But at the end of the day, you got to perform for them and explain to them what you're doing along the way. And, and why, most people just want an explanation. Why are you selling this piece of land? Why are you, you know, going for that kind of zoning? Why are you not selling these houses? Why are you not launching for marketing? Why are you waiting? Like, as long as you speak and communicate to people and they know that everyone is like doing what's in the best interest of the money, which by the way, myself, my family, we're all investors in all these projects in the same terms and conditions. At any point in time, you know, we have, I you know, We'll personally have 15 or $20 million. These are Peter dollars, not even Graybrook dollars in these investments. And I'm getting the same return that anyone else's. I don't have press shares. I don't have like, we're all in the same boat together. So it's good enough, you know, a general investment philosophy. If I'm going to put my mom and my grandma into it, then yeah, it's, uh, sure. it should be good enough for everybody. And that, I'm sure that's a great, I mean, not a pitch, so to speak, but that's, that's comforting for your investors to know that you've kind of got skin in the game too, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a lot different for people who understand that there isn't any game. So whether you write a $5 million check or a $100,000 check, other than owning more or less of the development, like we're all in the same, everyone gets the best deal, I guess. <laughs> That's an easy way of yeah. saying it, right? 
There's no, uh, it's, like, it's like AutoNation in the U.S. No haggle pricing. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. It sounds like a, it sounds really. Um, like I say, the model is model seems to be working for you. How many other firms are there out there in the marketplace that are replicating this or attempting to replicate it? Yeah, I mean, the way I explain it is that there's been people since like the beginning of time been trying to raise equity for real estate development. Like that just like existed. We like to think that we're unique in the sense that from a asset management standpoint, a co-management standpoint, an experience standpoint, capital and bulk, we like to think that we're in a special class. But you know, everyone sees the world from how they you know from their seat and. People think that there might be people that do things similarly, but we like to think that what we offer our investors is just pretty much unmatched in the uh, in the industry. And that's, so, a, that's a big number too. So it, the results kind of speak for themselves in that that a lot of people buy into that too. It's yeah, I mean, also the ability for an individual investor to come in and partner on a giant scale development with like no recourse, no like it's different than going to one of the richest families in Canada and say, okay, you put up money, we'll put up money, we'll develop something together. That's not a replicable business model necessarily, and it's not access. Like we provide access to these things for people that is wide scale, portfolio based, and that's really the, like there's people who invest equity in development. There's there's lots of groups that do stuff like that, right? But doing it like this with these kinds of people and give them access, we think it's a rare thing. So this is a theme. That's the second last question, and we'll get to our last question. But second last question. This has been a theme that's come up a couple of times as we've talked to individuals like yourself that have, you know, gone out and done what it sounds like was your dream. Now you you admitted you kind of walked bass backwards into it, but nevertheless you kind yeah. of found yourself in this in, in this role that you you seem to to really enjoy. And you know, our listenership. I know anybody in real estate has always got this dream of I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to I'm going to raise my own equity. I'm going to invest in my own property. I'm going to build my own sort of real estate portfolio. So for those people that are out there thinking about that, what would you say to them? Or maybe a different way, yourself, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, thinking about starting this, what's the advice that you would give them? Yeah, you be resilient in, in, what, in your belief. Like, do your research, understand. But there's only predominantly people that tell you no. You can't do it. It's not possible. You're going to fail. And then sometimes people end up like one of those like self-fulfilling prophecies where if you think it, then you'll do it. Like, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Just if I had known how hard and how complicated, it probably would have been so like massively insurmountable mentally that I wouldn't have gotten started in this space. But we didn't know how hard it was. And when people said you couldn't do it, we took that as, well, we can't do it. Or we're going to show you that we're going to do it. And we're going to do it really well. We're going to do it and have a long-term mentality. Like if you try to make as much money as you can over any one transaction, it's not a good long-term business strategy. Play the long game and really just put your head down and work hard and be honest. And really, it's doable. I think people should do it. I think more people should go out and be entrepreneurial than there are. And there's, you know, things in life that don't allow you to from life circumstances, finances, and all that stuff. But, you know, I didn't have a whole lot when I started. I have a little bit more today. And I think that most people who will go out and want it, if you actually want it, you can do it. Some people don't want to work as hard as they need to in order to achieve it. And maybe you find out that you don't actually want it as bad as you do. But if you really want it, I think you can go out and get it. Do it. Great. Good answer. Inspirational, yeah. <laughs> So the, the question we end off with, this is kind of a funny one. You know, the question, of course, is if you're investing in one asset class in one city, what would it be? We also just spent the last 10 minutes talking about how you're pretty focused on a few markets. So this kind of flies in the face of that. But if you were just, a, you know, a blank canvas looking to invest, we're going to leave it to Canada, of course, because you are interested in other markets. Uh, but if you were to invest in one asset class in Canada... Unlimited be? capital. Just pretend you've got a billion dollars sitting in I your lap. I think he has unlimited yeah. capital. <laughs> okay, yeah. So imagine you were you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I and even if it wasn't just limited to Canada, my answer would be the same. I believe that owning like dirt, actual land in the core of Toronto that's got development potential, whether it's a big tower or a little tower, that is an asset class that is super, super finite. And we are at an exponential growth rate in the city of Toronto. You know, we've done some different studies and this will range when costs move into, but sometimes over 11, 12, 1300 bucks a foot 
after a certain point, every dollar of revenue that goes up, 50 or 60 cents goes straight to land value. That's why you're seeing stuff in Vancouver trade for 600 bucks a foot. So if you're talking about a finite asset, that is land is one of the only assets in the world that has real value that doesn't trade on an exchange. There's no mark to market. So it's, it's not market correlated. It's super finite in the city of Toronto and the downtown core of Toronto specifically, if you're asking the only one. And if you have development potential, I think that that's going to be gold. And whether you monetize it today or tomorrow or five years from now, I think that's a super safe place to be. And that's, that underpins our investment thesis. We're really owners of land at the end of the day. So getting specific to that answer, do you have a ceiling on what you would pay on a per square foot for the, the perfect parking lot that's kind of right downtown core Toronto? Yeah, I mean, everything has... It's such a complicated question because everything has a ceiling for sure. Yeah. And everything... I mean, you can't think to yourself, well, in 50 years, it'll be worth this. So I'll buy it at that. Yeah. I mean, everything goes to structure, right? Somebody wants a dollar, you know, they think it's worth a dollar. They want a dollar in cash. There's a price for that. If someone says, you know what? You don't have to pay me anything for it and you have no risk and it's interest-free for the next 10 years. That is a different price, right? So it's so... And that's why when, you know, when people say, you know, what's land worth? The answer is I had to look at everything from structure to zoning risk to like, if I'm trying to build a building mid-block in between two tall towers, it's going to be much more expensive and much more complicated. Even from us, the thing that scares me the most today, like what's the scariest thing in doing in Toronto is building 90 story towers in Toronto, right? Like building these tall, not that people can't do it and can't make money doing it. And they are, but you know, the construction risk of doing some of this stuff. So if I have to build 92 stories, if I can't sell no floor 90 for two and a half thousand dollars a foot or 20, probably knock it off. And then you keep going down and you do these things. So at the end of the day, it's so specific to what I'm looking at and what I'm buying that I, I wish it was that simple of like, I'll never pay more than a buck for this. Well, I was getting more, like that. you're thinking more about your, so your answer was you, it's going to be worth what it, it's going to be worth more than you paid for it at some point in the future, just because there's no more supply. And it is, you know, from a demand in this core of a metropolis, there is a level where you can kind of say, okay, you know what? I'm not planning on building this on this thing in for another 15 years. So I will pay a significant premium just to get my hands on it to hold it's, it. Cause I know it's not our investment thesis. Yeah, course, we try to, we yeah. try to buy at market. Today. today or be, like we really like to think of ourselves as sunset buyers i call it. like we want to make money before the sun sets that day on our buy <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way but my advice on that is and my and our viewpoint on that is if i'm going to pay a little more or if i'm going to pay a premium i'm going to get something really good right i don't mind paying a premium for you know the most prestigious piece of corner real estate in, in yorkville or on bloor street or near uft like there's certain things that you're worth paying a premium for what you don't want to do is pay a premium for something that nobody else wants and that's really, it's okay to pay a bit more when you're getting a bit more. Great. Thanks very much, Peter. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much. Uh, we want to thank our sponsor, uh, First National. We thank our guests for listening, of course. You know, share the episode with anybody in Toronto that would be interested in this. It's a great topic. Yeah. Thanks. And, and do you want to throw a website out? Any other resources that guys can find uh, more information? Yeah. If somebody um, wants to throw $25,000 at you, where do they go? Yeah, sure. Uh, the website is graybrook.com, G-R-E-Y-B-R-O-K.com. And you can also email us at uh, info at graybrook.com too. Or if they want a $28 million condo. It's a- <laughs> Let us know. I've got one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. right. <laughs> See you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.